I'm Joyce Hornady. You might say accuracy is my business. I make bullets. You are listening to the Hornady Podcast. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Hornady Podcast. We appreciate you tuning in. I'm your host, Seth Swarzik, and I'm joined today beside me, marketeer Judge Jarzinkin, across the table, Matt Ritchie. Guys, thanks for, for coming on. Pleasure yeah. is all mine again. Yeah, so. looking forward to it. Looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, yeah we've got a, a, a guest here that is a, a purveyor of something that we certainly enjoy. I know you guys are all about this, and we've joked uh, over uh, the last couple weeks here doing these podcasts that every hunt turns into a coyote hunt when you see a coyote. <laughs> And uh, it's so true, and they're so fun, and they're so cagey, and they're so smart. So, um, yeah, I'm pretty excited to get this conversation going and learn what we need to learn. So join me in welcoming our guest today, Jeff Nimnick. Jeff, thanks for coming on the show with us. Hey, great to be on here with you guys. Yeah, Jeff, you've been shooting Hornady now for a long time, and, and people are probably familiar uh, with your YouTube series, The Last Stand, and obviously your podcast, the uh, Eastman Predator Pros podcast, um, and you've been into the coyote game for a long time and uh, if anybody knows how to get it done it's probably you you're making me feel old now you know <laughs> i remember well, 15 before, years ago looking at all these old guys in the sport you know that have been doing a long time and now you know here we are sure well before we make you feel old let's make you feel young again and tell us about what jeff was doing growing up where'd you grow up were you an athlete doing sports in the outdoors what got you into the outdoors and into coyotes and and kind of how that gets started for you. You know, I grew up out in, in western Nebraska, uh, graduated high school from Garing. Mm. Um, so down the road from you guys, you know, a ways. But, uh, you know, hunting and fishing opportunities galore out here. Um, my dad hunted and fished, so, you know, had the opportunity at a very young age to go with him. Usually it was, it was waterfowl hunting or pheasant hunting. That's just what my dad liked to do. Um, but, uh, you know, was able to kill my first duck and goose and deer, you know, when I was, you know, nine, 10, 12 years old. Um, but, uh, yeah, kind of, you know, when I turned 16, it kind of just opened the door to a lot of new things, you know, cause I had the freedom to go where I wanted and do what I wanted to do. And sure. Um, you know, as you guys know, Nebraska doesn't have a whole lot of public ground, you know, maybe 3% or something like that. I think it's, yeah, 2%. Yeah. yeah. And we, um, we have a few little public areas out here. So after I turned 16, best friend and I, you know, we said, Hey, let's just load up, you know, shotguns, 22s. Let's just go out to this public hunting area and just blast stuff, you know, whatever we could find to shoot. And, and it, it must've been later winter, maybe February, March at this time. Well, actually back it up. It was probably just shortly after I turned 16. So it would have been February, but anyway, we head out to this public hunting area. And as you know, our public areas usually have like a parking area and then you got to hike in on, on everything. So we pull into this gravel parking lot and I look, across the the gravel and i see something laying in, in the rocks so i walk over there and it's a lanyard of hand calls um you know and this is this would have been the, in the mid 90s um pick it up and it's it's a it's a lanyard full of critter calls you know major Boddicker um had a line of calls out back in the day um and i mean it's little orange peewees and it had the big howlers and it had them all in there so obviously somebody was out there calling coyotes and they loaded up their truck and dropped their lanyard in the the parking lot and forgot about mm -hmm. it so I picked this baby up and was like, oh man, you know, this is, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of literature and stuff at that time. You know, there wasn't YouTube, there wasn't the internet, there wasn't really any way to find out what, what this was about. But I kind of took them, I started blowing them and figured, well, heck, you know, every time I'd been out with my dad previously, um, before that, you know, deer hunting, especially or antelope hunting 
we would see coyotes. And like you guys said, it was a target of opportunity at that point. You'd see it. And um, I actually shot my first coyote when I was, I don't know, I think back at that, maybe back in the 90s, you had to be 14, I believe, before you could deer hunt. Now I know they've changed it in Nebraska, but I think it was 14. So I shot my first coyote when I was 14, just out deer hunting. You know, I jumped across the hood and had an old lever action 308 that my dad had, had like a probably a fixed four power scope on it. Yeah, the Weaver K4. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I threw that baby across the hood and the dumb coyote ran out there and stopped about 100 yards and I ended up hitting him in the head. Obviously, I wasn't, wasn't aiming there, but, you know, that was the first coyote I ever killed. But, you know, through those next couple of years, we'd see coyotes and stuff. So I went home, probably annoyed the crap out of my parents blowing on these hand calls and, I figured it out a little bit, and I told my dad, dad I said, do you think if uh, I gave that rancher a call where we go deer hunt, do you think he'd let me out there, come out there and try to call coyotes? And sure enough, I called him up, and he, he let me come out, and the very first time I ever tried tried it, I, I was laying up in the prone on the top of the highest hill I could find. I had absolutely no idea what I was doing, other than I'm just going to go blow this call and see what shows up. And um, I had a, a 25-odd six um, that I was shooting at the time. And, um, laying there in the prone and I'm laying right on a fence. I'm kind of, kind of laying there looking down, down the hill and the fence was kind of running left to right where I was laying. Well, I'm a left-handed shooter and I, I look over to my left, hard left, right down the fence. And there's a coyote standing there about 75 yards looking at me. <laughs> so, you know, as a left, it's tough, you know, especially laying in the prone to get moved. So I'm just slowly scooting and scooting and scooting and scooting. And the whole time the coyote kind of sat there moving his head, looking at me, wondering what the hell I was doing. And, he stood there long enough and I got turned and, and shot him. And I thought, oh man, this is, this is cool. You know, this is so easy. These coyotes are so dumb. And, and then it was probably, <laughs> uh, it was probably at least two years. I don't even know. I mean, it was a long, long time before we actually killed another coyote that we called in. I mean, we were educating coyotes left and right. Um, you know, it just, in then, you know, that's when the, the whole learning process starts and it's kind of been that way ever since. That's pretty neat, and yeah, I think a lot of us guess sharing those experiences. You turn 16, have gun, have truck, will travel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got to chuckle out of it, too, because I, I annoyed the heck out of my wife and my kids with all my hand calls, and I'd have a lanyard in my pickup, and I'd, like, anywhere I went, if I was by myself, I was practicing howling and rabbit calls and sequences and everything, so I, I that that hits home with me. Like, I my kids still cringe when I want to watch a, a a call an all coyotes video or get my calls out. They still cringe. So <laughs> educating the kids. Yeah, yeah yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> so when did it transition from, wow, this is fun and I'm kind of getting better at it into something that became, you know, more of a, you know, how did it morph into a profession? Well, you know, after, like I said, during, during my high school years, you know, I didn't do any winter sports. So, you know, I had lots of time on my hands as a, you know, just, between working and things. So we spent a lot of time hunting and, and not just coyotes, you know, we'd hunt ducks and geese and deer sure. and all that kinds of stuff. Um, you know, after high school, I went into the Marine Corps. Uh, so I was gone for four years there, you know, didn't get a whole lot of, of chances to hunt. You know, I'd come home once or twice a year, you know, and maybe hunt a few times. But once I, once I got out of the Marine Corps in 2002, um, I was going to college. So, you know, I had all the time on my hands that you could possibly want to go hunt. Um, and you know, at that time I hunted a lot of different things still, you know, waterfowl, probably 50, 50 between waterfowl and, you know, big game and coyotes. And, you know, maybe after doing that for a few years, I just, I really just fell in love with coyote hunting. I just, the challenge, just everything that it entailed, um, you know, the speed of the hunt, 
you know, I'm not a very patient person. I, most predator hunters aren't real patient people. I mean, I think that's why what really draws them to, to predator hunting. Fast um, action. Yeah, you know, so you're able to move a lot. You're not sitting in the same spot. You, you're actively pursuing, trying to find coyotes and things. And, and I really, I like the shooting aspect of it. You know, I, you know, I did a lot of shooting in the Marine Corps um, and things like that. So I, I really like the aspect of that. And, uh, you know, there's just a kind of a switch at one point, And I just said, you know what, you only have X amount of days of winter to hunt and between family and, and work and everything else. And I said, well, if I really want to get good at coyote hunting, I need to spend, you know, 90, 95% of those days hunting coyotes and nothing else. And, and that's kind of what I did at that point, you know, instead of hunting coyotes 20 days a, a winter, I would hunt coyotes, you know, 50 or 60 days a winter. And it's just, wow. you know, at that point you just, you're just calling in that many more coyotes. You're seeing that many more coyotes. You're making that many more coyote stands and you just get better that much faster. Um, and you just learn things that much faster, just through that much more experience that you're giving yourself sure. um, at a rapid rate. So, you know, that's been that way now since probably 2005 or six. Um, and, um, you know, they're about in the late 2000s, um, maybe 2007, I decided, you know what, you know, I'm seeing some pretty cool stuff out here. And at the time there was, there was a DVD market out there for coyote hunting. Like you talked about calling all coyotes, Matt. Um, you know, Randy Anderson had the, had a DVD line out, you know, Rick Paulette, who's a great buddy of mine that films the last stand with me. Now he had the Verminator, you know, series of coyote hunting DVDs out. Um, I think Les Johnson at the time had some, some DVDs. There was a handful of guys that were putting out coyote hunting DVDs. And I thought, you know what? I could do that. And, um, so kind of self-taught myself with the cameras and all that kind of stuff. And in the extra work that goes into filming your hunts. And, uh, you know, was able to put out, uh, my first DVD in 2008, got in with a company called Stony Wolf and they kind of distributed, uh, DVDs to all the big box stores and got in with them and, um, you know, ended up putting out a series of three DVDs in 2008, 2010 and 2012. Um, and they were sold at Cabela's and Walmart and, and you name it. And that's kind of what got me into the, I guess the commercial side of things, if you want to call it that, um, uh, you know, which kind of got me to the point where I am now with, you know, doing the podcast and filming the last stand show and, and, you know, all, all that's entailed there. But, um, but throughout that process, um, I started, I started a, a project out here, what I call coyote craze college. And th- at the time, you know, early in the two thousands, there were, there were lots of guys wanting to go on guided coyote hunts, but there really weren't a whole lot of outfitters out there doing it. And if they did, it was more or less, you were a, you were a big game outfitter you had the land leased up and then you just had one of your guides just would take a guy out coyote hunting, but he really didn't have the knowledge base of coyote calling. Mm-hmm. So I started doing a few guided coyote hunts and, and I realized it just wasn't the right people that I was wanting to work with. And, um, I've always had a, I don't know, a, a need to, or a want, I guess, or an ability to, to teach and explain things, I guess a little bit better. You know, I do a lot of coaching now with my boys. Um, I love coaching baseball i i've always even back before i had kids i volunteered and coached you know football teams and things like that um originally my i was going in to be a teacher uh, my first actual year of college but then i realized ah the money wasn't real great and uh you know i just decided to go the business route instead um but so i've always liked that so i i came up with this an idea to to put on a coyote hunting school and i started that back in about 2010 
Um, and you know, early on, it took a while to get it going and get the notoriety out there and things like that. But uh, but now it's it's you know a pretty popular thing I do. You know, classes book up within about a day of me releasing all the class dates throughout the season. But uh, but yeah, that's you know I've kind of got my hands in about every possible thing you could do in the coyote world at this point between filming and podcast and teaching coyote schools. Um, I do do a few guided hunts on the side. I work with a few local outfitters that have some stuff lined up that have clients that want to go. So um, I'm just, you know, very fortunate to be able to to do a lot of different things in the coyote world, and and it keeps me busy, and and it keeps, you know, keeps me learning and experience new things, even even at this point in the game. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah and and uh, a neat transition into as you called it the commercial side of things, and it's clear to see just with that story. It was a passion because you said you went from 20 to 50 or 60 days a winter hunting these coyotes. You don't do that if you're not hyper passionate about yeah. the topic. Committed for sure. Yeah. I would love to be able to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's yeah. what I tell guys, you know, a lot of guys are like, oh, you know, I just, I, and it really comes down to days in the field. I mean, you can't expect if you're the type of hunter that only makes it out maybe once a month to hunt coyotes, it's, it's going to be tough for you to probably ever get really good at it i mean it's just it's just the way it is you know and Mm -hmm. um you know i've never been the one to brag and boast and say oh but you know i've just been fortunate enough that i get to hunt coyotes a lot and i should be good at it you know i mean if you get to do it a lot you should be good at it Um, that's true and and that's the kind of the way i've always looked at it but but on that same hand i've always i've always really i've never been afraid to share my knowledge with people um it seems like in the hunting world especially the coyote world it's kind of a small knit group, you know, and it seems like everybody that's gotten really good at it has paid their dues and, and fought their way through it and learned through trial and error. And it's kind of like most of them say, no, I'm not, I had to work hard to learn what I learned. I'm not going to share it with you. You need to go learn it on your own. <clears throat> sure. I've just never felt that way. I, you know, it's not a big, nothing's ever a big secret. I thought, you know what? I want people to experience what I get to experience, you know, with the, the success of, just watching coyotes come in and being able to kill coyotes and, and things like that. So that's kind of what I've based my whole commercial career around, I guess you could say, is the ability to teach coyote hunting, explain it in a way that, that people can understand it. Um, because ultimately, if you look at, at, at the coyote world, there's a ton of great coyote hunters out there that kill lots of coyotes. But sure. being able to explain it in a way that the normal guy can understand it is, is not a strong suit of many of those guys. That's true. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, and go ahead, Jen. Well, I'm just, this might be a great segue in sharing that knowledge because that's what I want to get after here is start firing some questions off and, and learn for myself, you know, which in turn helps everybody listen. Yeah. But yeah. Well, now let's, yeah, let's dig into that. I want to, I got some questions as they relate to maybe Hornady products and when he got involved with us. And I know you guys have some tactics kind of questions because, uh, you know, it's, is it fun to shoot coyotes and fun to call coyotes? And absolutely. But it's also a, a pretty big conservation effort because you're you're never going to hunt them to extinction. They will always reproduce faster than you can kill them. And uh, you know, for deer and and small game, you know, turkeys, pheasants, etc. Uh, yeah, you you know you you want to be out there hunting them. So Judd, fire off what you got for questions here because I'm curious. Well, the first thing I got with talking about how many days in a in a year you hunt, and then how many stands that is. Uh, not necessarily how much ground is that, but, but how often are you hitting the same spots or is, is the key just having as many spots as you can 
and get permission on. I mean, making that many stands, that many days, got to have a bunch of ground, I would assume. Or can you hit spots more often than once or twice? Yeah, good question. I mean, land access is huge. Um, unlike, you know, deer hunting and some other things, you know, I think, you know, deer hunting is the major sport, you know, I mean, it's the major part of hunting. I think everybody is part of deer hunting at some point in their, their life, I guess. Um, so a lot of guys, when they start coyote hunting, they kind of relate back to the deer hunting thing. Well, you know, as a deer hunter, especially maybe a bow hunter, maybe you're a, a Midwestern or Eastern deer hunter, you may have 40 acres or something, you know, and you have a tree stand in there. And you can go out to that spot day after day after day and deer hunt, right? And you could maybe even kill multiple deer out of that stand. And I think people kind of relate that to coyote hunting, which it's not the same. And, you know, the land access, having enough land is is really the key. Um, you know, I tell people this, you know, you're going to get one crack at a coyote um, to kill that coyote where he's, let's say, unpressured, uneducated, you know, however you want to call it. And if you don't get it done that first time, that coyote is tenfold smarter the next time, possibly. I don't know. I mean, I'm just guessing on a number there, you know. So the more times you're going back after that same coyote over and over, it's just the smarter and more wary that coyote gets and the harder he gets to kill. So, you know, you need some time in between going to hunt places. And and there's a lot of stuff involved in that. Are you the only one that hunts it? Is it private? Is it public? Who else has been in there? Has any nobody been in there? Um but really what I try to do is set up a rotation in my properties where I can maybe hunt everything once early season. And, and I want to back up a little bit too, because there are a lot of guys throughout the country that hunt coyotes year round. And in most States you can hunt coyotes year round. I've always kind of had a self-regulated season. You know, I'll start hunting them in maybe mid October, hunt them through maybe the first part of March. And then I'm done just with what I do. I have a, I didn't really talk about that, but I started up a lawn care business back when I was in college. So it kind of pairs up really nicely for what I do. Yeah, um, in yeah. the coyote stuff, you know, it gives me all winter to go screw around and chase coyotes. Um, but so, and and then on our coyotes are worth some money. You know, they always have been in where we're at. Some parts of the country they're not worth anything. So shooting them, and then now the whole thermal game has changed, where guys are spending a lot more time out in the summer, out hunting them at night and stuff like that. But for me personally, it's always just been a self-regulated season. So I'm talking about from maybe October till the first part of March. How can I? you know, rotate my properties and hunt my properties so that every time I go out there, I feel like I have a good approach, a good, you know, fresh set of ears to call to. And, and by doing, you know, maybe a hunt early on in the fall, um, you know, at that time you have the, the young coyotes are kind of dispersing. Um, they're probably not all quite where they're going to end up once winter gets here. Um, and then, you know, I'll try to maybe wait a month, a month and a half and try to come back through about you know, dead of winter, you know, December sometime and hit it again because now coyotes have moved around a little bit. Um, and if you were successful early on in that property and killed a coyote out of there, you gave it a month, month and a half. So hopefully maybe a, a new transient coyote, one of these young coyotes that have dispersed out, moved in there and took over that spot and you can come in and hunt that coyote again, you know, midwinter. And then I usually maybe try to hunt at one time late. Um, I don't refer to late, maybe like February. And now we're into that breeding season, that transition time there where even now, if the coyotes have been pressured a little bit, they're changing gears. You know, they're they're worried about sustaining the the species, not themselves. And um, you can throw some different things at them. You can use a lot more of those coyote based sounds and things like that, and and trick some of those older older coyotes. Then, so that's really the rotation I look at is is try to try to hunt everything maybe a max of about three times a winter, um, and and you can go through and, and you know you can put a pencil to it. And what I tell people this, you can go through. 
if you're really trying to figure out how much ground you need, just go through and figure out how many stands are you going to make in a month of, of coyote hunting from October to March, okay? And Matt, let's use you for example, all right? How many, how many stands a month would you say you're going to make probably from now through February? Hmm. So I, I'm guess. pretty, yeah, if I, if I had to guess, I would say 30 to 40, you yeah. know, maybe, maybe, maybe give or take, you know, 10 stands in there, depending on if I, you know, over Christmas break, if I've got some extra days, I can, I can put in, you know, several extra stands, but yeah, probably 30, 40, maybe 50 at the most. So, so yeah, let's just take 40, you know, and that's a good number. And I go off number of stands, not number of days hunting because everybody hunts a little bit different. You know, when I go out hunting, it's usually for a full day, leave in the dark and I'm not home till the dark. Um, but a lot of guys will only run out and maybe make a few stands in the morning. They might run out and make a few stands in the afternoon after work or whatever. So we go off number of stands. So let's do 40 stands a month. What I'll do is I'll take that times two and, and that gives me total, roughly 80 stands. That's what I really need at the bare minimum to kind of make that rotation work. So you can start, whether you're using Onyx or whatever apps you have, you know, you can start dropping pins on all the places that you think, you know, where you have stands. And, and then you can start adding them up and say, man, I'm only sitting with 50 stands. Well, man, I'm, I'm way short on what land access I need. So instead of maybe spending that time going out and re-hunting that place over and over, you spend that time, you know, driving around, knocking on doors, talking to farmers and ranchers exploring new pieces of public ground, whatever it may be, to to really build your your repertoire of, of stands up. Because not only, you know, that is not all those stands are going to be good for a certain wind direction on top of that, you know. So you might have 80 stands lined up. Well, maybe only 20 of those stands are good for a south wind. and Maybe 40 of those stands are good for a north or a west wind. So the more you have, the better off you're going to be. Ultimately, your goal should be, you know, to have enough spots where you only have to hit them once a year. I mean, that's what I tell people. If you can accomplish that, you know, you're going to have success year round or all season long. Diving in even deeper on that, the thing that a question that jumped out to me is so that many stands, just to relate it where we're at in central Nebraska, a giant chunk of the ground is, you know, cut into quarters. So yep. 160 acre chunks. So say you have permission on a handful of those on that 160 acre square. How many stands would you feel you could get out of there? Is it dependent on the terrain? Is it dependent on the cover? You know, I, if I have a quarter of ground, is it a one stand spot or is there multiple stands in that chunk of ground? Yeah, I mean, a quarter, you're, you know, we're talking a quarter section, you know, so you're talking a half mile wide by a half mile long, you know, kind of a piece of ground for people that don't understand, you know, what that acreage yeah. is. I mean, yeah, that's that's good for one stand because by the time you come in off the road, you know, you're going to have to drive in there a hundred or 200 yards. Now you're only talking, you only have another five or 600 yards till you hit that property boundary. Um, so yeah, that place is good for probably one stand. Now, if you had a whole section, you know, a mile by a mile, now, depending on where the other roads are and things like that, um, you know, you could get multiple stands out of a section just because you could maybe come in and make one stand kind of covering the main chunk of that section. But then you can work your way back to some, uh, maybe one or two of those back corners of that property. And uh, th that's the cool thing about coyote hunting is, um, you know, coyotes are coming to you. So, you know, who knows where they come from? They could be on the neighbor's property. They could be, you know, over here on the next property. But they're coming to you onto the property that you have the permission to shoot them on. So um, you can turn actually, you know, one section into even more ground just 
the way that the access low as long as it's not surrounded completely by dirt roads on every side, you know, which might be a little challenging, but so when you talk about, you know, you're you're calling coyotes, they're coming to you. Are when you're going into a stand, are you assuming the coyotes are here? Or are you just here's this chunk of ground, the coyotes could be anywhere, or are you narrowing down in your mind? I'm pretty sure they're over here. Well, I, I generally speaking, I think you in order to make a coyote stand, I think you have to assume that there's a coyote there. You know, that's what motivates you to go make that stand, right? Like if you drive by a spot and it looks doesn't look good to you, you'd be like, oh, there's no coyote there. Let's just keep on going. We ain't going to make that. So in your mind, you're already saying, wow, that looks pretty good, whether it's whatever it may be, you know, whether it's the cover, the amount of cover out there, the way the train lays. Maybe you've seen coyotes out there before. You know, who knows what it is, but for for some of those reasons, you're saying, yep, I think there's a coyote out there. Now, specifically getting in there, you know, yeah, there are times when I'll sit down on a stand and I'll say, okay, you know, you, you know, you might have what I what to tell people every time you walk into a stand, you have 360 degrees around you. Right. Um, but I picture that as a pie or pizza, whatever you want to call it. Well, certain slices of that pie or pizza are out of the equation because a, I just maybe drove my truck right to there. Okay. So that piece of the pie is gone. Um, maybe the, the piece of pie to the left and right, they can, if they come from there, they're going to be able to see the truck. So those pieces of the pie are gone. And then maybe our wind's blowing here off to our left. Well, that chunk of the pie is gone because if they show up straight down wind, they're going to wind us before. But really what ultimately when you get to the spot where you're going to set up, which is the center of that pie, you really want a, at least 180 degrees of that pie left over that is untouched, meaning I haven't drove through it. I haven't walked through it. And my wind is not blowing out into that. And, and then once you identify that area where you think the coyotes are going to be that are that's untouched then i start narrowing it down a little bit okay we're out there where where's the coyote going to be if they're in here you know and, and a lot of that has to do with is it early in the day uh, early morning late in the day you know when the coyotes are up on the move you know a lot of times they'll spend spend time in those what i call transition areas you know those field edges and and things like that or is it the middle part of the day when the coyotes are laid up like you know deer you know, they're going to bed up just like deer and cover. So, um, yeah, it really depends on exactly there. But, you know, and that really comes down to it doesn't really matter where they're at as long as they're somewhere in that 180-degree piece of the pie. You know, then then you can start getting into the details of how I set up and how I place the e-call and, and do all that to maximize your efficiency of, of actually killing those coyotes, you know, once they show up. Yeah, the other thing I'd like to add that, too, when, when I, you know, not that I'm on your level, Jeff, but when— when I look at a piece of ground, I'm, I spend a lot of time on the back of a horse, you know, gathering cattle, cattle follow, or they're like water. They're the path of least resistance. And I would say coyotes are the same way too. Like they're gonna, you know, if you see a rutted out cow trail, you know, following a fence line or coming down on the side of a ridge, they're going to follow that. They're not going to, they're going to take the path of least resistance. So that's another thing I look for when I'm making my set. So. Yep. Now, ultimately too, you know, a lot of people just don't, they're like, what do I even look for? You know? And I tell them this, you know, if wherever you're going to sit your butt down and make a stand, draw a circle out there about five to 600 yards. And the more cover and terrain and cuts and everything that you can throw within that five, 600 yard circle, the better of a coyote stand it's going to be. You know, if you're, if you can see as far as I can see for 700 yards and there's no cuts, there's no nothing, there's no brush. To me, that's not a great coyote stand. Yeah. You might call one in and it might come from a long, long ways, but you know, you get into a spot where there's two or three little draws, cedar draws, or you got a crick bottom down in front of you. You got some ag of some kind over here, maybe a CRP field. 
and, and that's all within that 600-yard radius of that 180 degrees we talked about, that just makes it that much better of a coyote stand because there's that much better of a chance there's a coyote going to be in there, you know, within that six or 800 yards, which is the distance that most of the coyotes are coming to the call anyway. So, so building on that, the question I have, and Seth, you're going to like this because we, we can't go a podcast without bringing up Nebraska Sandhills. Hey, that's, so, my, that's my jam. <laughs> my experience from hunting in the Sandhills, you know, from, from where we're at, you know, Cornfield, Central Nebraska, the Sandhills, Especially if you look at them on a map, to me, everything looks similar. Everything looks kind of the same. Yep. So in the sand hills, what are you looking for? I mean, I know you kind of said the cuts and whatnot, but how, how do you approach, okay, I've got this piece of property in the sand hills, mostly kind of rolling hills. Yep. There's some ponds. There's some maybe shelter belts. How, how are you approaching that to set up some stands? Well, I've hunted all over the country. I mean, maybe 15, 16 different states. The sand hills are still my favorite place to call coyotes so i'm glad you guys brought this up um it took me quite a few years to kind of figure out the best way to hunt it you know and i still kind of change and evolve my process of hunting it a little bit but you know generally speaking in that country you know if you've never been to the sandhill country you'll have these these low bottoms you know and there's lots of water in the sandhills you know the ogallala aquifer sits underneath that whole whole piece of country and you know so the water table's not very deep and so you'll get these meadows um, hay meadows that have maybe little lakes and, and rush beds and tall weeds. And, and then the ranches will come in there and mow it and hay it. Um, and then it transitions up into these, these rougher sand hills. And some sand hills are just big, gradual, big sloping ones, especially once you get in the eastern part of the sand hills, probably north of where you guys are at. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you're in the west side of the sand hills, you get a lot more shorter, real choppy sand hills, more yuccas, um, a little more vegetation, um, it seems like. Usually what you'll get, you know, especially into the winter months, um, are several things. A, the ranchers bring all their cattle down usually onto those hay meadows. Um, and, you know, they're constantly feeding those cows and things like that. So that naturally draws coyotes down in there just because the coyotes are eating the, the cake. Um, you know, the, the rancher brings his tractor along and is stringing out a thing of hay. I think that draws in rodents and things. And the coyotes come in there and, and eat that. And then obviously you might have an occasional dead cow and things like that. So the coyotes will kind of con- congregate around the cattle. Mm. Um, so I'll spend a lot of time hunting those, those meadow areas, you know, later in the winter. Now, early in the fall like this, the coyotes are still dispersed, clear out, you know, kind of in what I call their summer range, you know, maybe wherever the coyotes had their litters and things like that. So they really could be anywhere at this point, you know, it's, uh, and sometimes it's just a matter of blanketing the area you know, as best you can. The, the cool part about the sand hills I've always liked is just the ability to off-road and kind of get to where you want to go, you know. In some places you hunt, you're you're limited to the roads. You can't leave the two-track because of the rocks and the sagebrush and the creek bottoms and things like that. The sand hills, if you've watched any of our last stand videos and stuff like that, you know, we just kind of pick our way through there and I can kind of maneuver and get my vehicle and get to where I want to go, regardless if there's a little two-track or not. And, you know, that helps open up the opportunities there because then what I can do is get the wind right, meaning kind of get to the downwind spot of, of, of where I want to hunt through. And then I can just make a series of stands kind of leapfrogging my way through there, blanketing the area because you're right. It does look the same. And, and there could be a coyote here. There could be a coyote there. I don't really know. There's nothing specific enough to tell me that coyote's going to be in one of those two spots. So I just have to call them both and, and hope that, and who knows, there might be a coyote in both. There might not be a coyote in either, but 
Um, that's really the most effective way is kind of blanket that area with stands. But then you'll run into specific spots where you might find a shelter belt. You know, maybe it's the middle part of the day and the wind's blowing. I'm like, okay, we're going to stop and specifically sneak down in there and call that shelter belt because there could be a coyote laid up in that, in that shelter belt. We might specifically get down on some of those hay meadows where the rush beds, once the lakes freeze over, those coyotes will get down into those rush beds and into those tall weeds and lay up for the day. You know, we may specifically get down in there and call those. Um, but a lot of times when you get up to those rolling choppy hills, it's just a matter of blanketing those areas in an effective way to, to call them in. Well, that's awesome. Are, it's, it's, are you are you still applying the same the same thought process to it? Like like Judd was talking about that section of ground. Are you still giving it that half mile buffer between stands, or are you are you only going five hundred yards? Or are you going further uh, in the sand hill specifically? Yeah, I mean, I'm probably a half mile is probably the shortest distance I'll ever go, even in a big wind. I mean, even if you're calling in maybe a you know fifteen twenty even a thirty mile an hour wind. I feel like the sound's still going out there that five, six hundred yard mark. I mean, coyotes have exceptional hearing, you know, four times better than you and I. And, um, you know, now, you know, running like, let's say, you know, the Lucky Duck Super Revolt or the Revolt, I mean, crazy volume in these calls. And, you know, it cuts out there. And, and it goes, in my opinion, it goes out there as far as a coyote's going to want to respond to the call, especially in the middle part of the day when it's windy. You know, the coyotes, I, I feel, have this imaginary bubble around them that, that, gets bigger or smaller throughout the day, throughout the different time of year, whatever. And, you know, as it gets windier, as the coyotes laid up, that bubble kind of contracts, meaning the coyotes just, regardless of whether they hear it or not, they just don't want to come very far, you know, so you got to get in close to them. So, yeah, a lot of times in those middle part of the days, if I'm getting in some of those choppier hills where those coyotes will lay up on the backside of hills in the sun out of the wind, kind of whatever, um, yeah, I may go a half mile, but maybe earlier in the day when the wind's not so much, um, and I know that sounds really now carrying out there, you know, 1,000, 1,200, maybe even a mile or more, and the coyotes could be responding from that far. Well, now I'll open up my stand distance a little bit. Now I may be going maybe upwards of a mile or so, you know, if you're in those areas where you can do that, where you can just drive yeah. and stop and make a stand and, and keep on going, working your way through an area. So what factors play into volume? You know, what, what are you considering when you're kind of making a call of, you know, am I going to call maxed out super loud or am I quiet? You know, what factors play into, I guess, just the volume of your call? You know, I think probably the cover, you know, where you're at. Um, you know, I talked about when you sit down, you're going to probably have an idea of where you think the coyotes are going to be if they're in there, you know? I mean, if it's, if you look off to the right and you can see for 500 yards and then there's cover and hills or brush or something that far away, okay, like that, that, if the coyote's in here, he's probably clear over there. But if you got a creek bottom or a canyon or whatever kind of terrain right in front of you, 100 or 200 yards, there's the potential that the coyote could be right in there too, right? Um, I think a lot of guys, though, when it comes to volume, they, uh, you know, they give coyotes this like, uh, almost like a thought process that coyotes think like you and I, like, well, oh, that's too loud. You're going to spook coyotes out. I err on the side of too much volume. I think a lot of guys err on the side of not enough volume because they're afraid they're going to spook coyotes. I've never been that way. I, I feel like. I kind of have this little saying that, you know, nothing's ever a hundred percent in coyote hunting. Like, you know, even coyotes circling downwind is not 100%. You know, I've seen coyotes circle upwind for some stupid reason, you know, so it's not ever 100%. But I tell people this, the only thing that is a 100% in coyote hunting is if they don't hear it, they will not come. So that's for me, I err on the side of, I want to make sure that that coyote, if the coyote is out there, he heard my sound. If he came, he came. If he doesn't, so be it. They don't all come just because they hear it. Um, but I want to make sure my volume gets to where I want to go. So I, 
I max the call a ton. I mean, if, if I have any amount of wind, you know, probably more than a five or eight mile an hour wind, I'm usually maxing the call out. Um, and, and the cool part about the lucky duck calls, your ability to rotate the call. So you can really scatter the sound in that whole 180 we're talking about, right? I want to cover sound in every square inch of that 180 degree piece of the pie and being able to scan that call and spin that call allows you to do that. And, and I I'll max it up, send the sound there and, and see what happens. Is that constant sound? I mean, you're switching sounds, different sounds, but are you ever, you know, I'm going to play for 60 seconds, sit for five minutes, you know, or is it just constant sound and then moving on to the next one? You know, I run the call continuous. I think, um, you know, the, the old, there are guys that do pause it, you know, and I think their theory is, well, I talk to them about that. I'll ask them, I'll say, what's your theory for doing that? Well, that's just the way I was told to do it. You know, well, that rate's that you start looking back at the history of coyote hunting. Well, before e-calls, guess what? All there was was hand calls, right? Well, there's no possible way to blow a hand call for five minutes straight. I mean, you had to pause and you had to stop and you had to catch your breath. Um, that doesn't, to me, that didn't mean that that's the best way to do it. That's just the way you had to do it, you know? So for me, I want to throw sound out there as fast as I can. For me, it's about speed and efficiency. Um, and if I'm sitting there quiet to me, I'm wasting time. And I've seen coyotes where I've, for whatever reason, maybe I bumped the call, maybe I turned it off, maybe I was getting ready to leave and a coyote showed up, and, I, and the coyotes almost check up like they hear it coming, and I don't know, for me, I think coyotes have a very short attention span, and if, if you kill the call for a certain amount of time, I think there's the possibility that that coyote could get distracted with something else, you know, jumping a rabbit or whatever it may be, so yeah, I've always been a, a big believer in just running the call continuous. You know, don't put human thought into the coyote. I mean, yeah, does it, can a rabbit sit there and scream for five, four or five minutes straight? Probably not. But a coyote doesn't think like you and I do, um, you know? So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I'm going to crank the call. I'm going to leave it running continuous until I decide to switch up the sound. And then I'm going to switch the sound and, and go and, and uh, you know, speed and efficiency. That's what I kind of base, base a lot of the stuff I do on. Man, you're preaching to the choir here because <laughs> I think I overthink things pretty often so yeah putting the human thought into it you know maybe take that out so like even switching sounds you know i mean are are you switching sounds constantly is there any i don't know negative thought to switching from one sound to another you know you got a rabbit you got a bird maybe a coyote sound or is it just play them all well you know i base i base a lot of my like time on stand um how long i'm playing a, a sound for i base it off a simple math equation and it's this you know, coyotes can run top speed of a coyote's like 43 miles an hour. Okay. So I picture a coyote running hard to the call. Yeah. He may be going 30, 35 mile an hour. If he's just diddy bopping, just taking his sweet ass time, maybe a, like a five mile an hour walk, you know? So most coyotes are somewhere in between there. Right. So for simple math purposes, I say, what if we have a coyote coming at 10 miles an hour, which is on the slower end, right? Most, a lot of coyotes are going to come in faster than that. If a coyote's trotting at 10 miles an hour coming to the call, how long does it take that coyote to cover one mile? Oh, look, the, the wheels are turning, the math. <laughs> 60 seconds? Yeah. Six minutes. Six, six minutes. minutes. Uh, it's six yeah. minutes. Now, most coyotes don't come from a mile. That's a long ways for a coyote to come. Most of the coyotes that you're calling in are coming from a half mile or shorter. So it's only taken that coyote three minutes to cover a half mile. Now, that's if you played a sound that that coyote liked, and here he comes, right? Within three minutes, roughly within three minutes. Now, this isn't 
every coyote. I mean, this isn't a hundred percent deal, but this is this is probabilities. This is percentages, right? That's what I work off of. So, a majority of the time, those coyotes within three minutes, if they're coming to the call, you're going to see them, shoot them, miss them, screw it up by then, whatever it is. But three minutes, right? So, a lot of times, playing playing the same sound longer than that three or four minutes to me, that's wasting time. You know, so when I'm switching up sounds, I'm doing it every three to four minutes. And, you know, we'll get into a little bit on, you know, what I do when I switch them. But yeah, that's what I base everything. So if I say, okay, I'm going to sit here, you know, nine or 10 minutes, you know, my nine or 10 minutes on stand can be completely different than somebody else's nine minutes on stand or 10 minutes on stand that's maybe plays the call for a minute or two and then sits there quiet for two or three minutes and then play. In my opinion, they only blew the call for four minutes out of 10, you know? And they only maybe played one different sound throughout that whole time. Where in my 10 minutes on stand, you know, I played three different sounds at that three to four minute mark, um, touched on some different triggers, you know, of reasons why coyotes come, whether it's playing a, like a prey distress sound, like you guys talked about a rabbit or a bird, or did I go to more some coyote based sounds like pup distresses and coyote fights and things that just trigger, trigger different responses in coyotes. Um, but really when I, when I sit down on that stand, I want to try to cover as much of the spectrum as I can, you know, from prey distress sounds to coyote based sounds, from starting off kind of less aggressive, finishing the stand as the most aggressive I can to really just appeal to every possible potential coyote that's out there. And then at the end of 10 or 12 minutes, you know, if nothing shows up, guess what? I'm on to the next one. And, uh, you know, for whatever reason, either there wasn't a coyote there or the coyote was there, just didn't want to show up and, and it's not the coyote I'm after. So, um, you know, onto the next spot. Hmm. Man, that's, that's good strategy. I have a question on the, on the call location. You're using e-calls primarily. Where are you placing that call in relation to where you set up at? Yeah. You know, I've used e-calls early on when I told you, when I kind of made the transition, you know, some of the earlier e-calls I had were all cassette based, you know, tapes. I think it was a Western rivers was the first one I ever had. And, you know, it was a huge call. I mean, it had this big speaker. It had this big cassette deck that had a built-in rechargeable battery and then i had an old duck decoy blind bag and i had all these cassette tapes you know stuffed in the outside pockets right so you know some of these maybe the newer listeners to coyote hunting maybe younger kids you know it, it was wild because i would have to pop the cassette in and you'd hit the end of the damn tape and I, you know there could be a coyote coming or whatever and i'd have to eject the cassette flip it over you know <laughs> pop it back in <laughs> And it would keep going. And if I wanted to switch sounds, I had to eject the cassette. I had to fumble through the pocket. I had to find what sound I wanted to switch, pop the new cassette in. You know, so e-calls have come a, a long ways. And, you know, at that time, there wasn't remotes for them, which is a huge part for me of, of, of an e-call. Like you said, you know, how do you place it? How am I able to utilize that technology? You know, getting that e-call out away from me. Because now, you know, back in the day, old school coyote calling, you know, you're blowing a hand call. Well, guess what? The sound's coming right from you. And and that's really what the coyote's keyed in on. He's he's worries about the sound and nothing else. But if if you and your movement and your scent is all coming from the sound source, well, then now we start having issues because that's really what the coyote's hunting. Now with the ability of an e-call, I can get that sound out away from me. Coyote's still hunting the sound. He's not hunting me. And now I can almost sit on the sidelines and mm -hmm. I can even position myself in maybe what might be a better shooting position. It's maybe not, it's not the best spot that I want the sound coming from, but it's the best spot for me to sit, to have the best vantage point, the best shooting lanes, whatever it may be. And I can take and put that sound source wherever I want and run that off a remote, you know? So, 
Um, you know, every setup's a little bit different, you know, as far as how far do I put the call away? I mean, a lot of times I would say roughly between, you know, 20, 30 yards is usually the closest I'll put it. And that's usually okay. if we got somebody running a shotgun. Um, you know, obviously if you got the call too far away from the shotgunner, you know, he's there to kill those coyotes that come running right up to the call, um, that don't stop. Um, but if we don't have a shotgunner on stand and it's a little bit more open, openness to the stand, you know, I have no problem walking that call out there 60, 80, a hundred yards sometimes just to help mold the stand a little bit better to help funnel coyotes into shooting lanes a little bit better and just keep the focus away from us. You know, we've, we've made coyote stands with eight of us on stand before. You know, wow. we're filming, you know, with camera guy, two cameras and six of five or six of us sitting there on stand in Eastern Colorado. If you've ever been to Eastern Colorado, the grass is about two inches tall. I mean, there's a few yuccas and we were sh- killing coyotes right at the call. And it all had to do with getting the call, getting the sound source out away from us. And as long as you're not moving, as long as you're sitting there tight, you know, the coyotes aren't going to look over there. They're focused on that sound and until you give them some reason to look over there at you. Sure. So that, in an ideal scenario, then, what's the wind doing where you set the call? Do you want the wind in your face? So assuming the coyote's here, do you want the wind directly in your face? Do you want it quartered a little bit? And then how do you place the call related to where the coyote is and which way the wind's blowing? Well, we can revert back to that 180 we've been talking about, right? So when I, I'm the center of that, kind of the, where the radius of that 180 starts, you know, I want the wind in any direction in my... From, from right to left, left to right, and any degree in my face, if that makes sense. You know, you can't always mold. You can, sometimes you can dictate where you set up, and maybe your access into a property will allow you to maybe call it from a crosswind setup. Sometimes you just your access, maybe it's, it's going to be a headwind. It's going to be straight into your face. Um, all, all are good, and all, all will work. Um, if I can mold it, though, I, I prefer a crosswind setup just because I can see the downwind at that point. Um, you know, if the wind's blowing from right to left or left to right, I can see that way. If it's blowing right in my face, more than likely I have some sort of cover, whether I'm sitting on a little side hill, maybe I'm sitting on a fence line, you know, back behind me where the wind's blowing is probably where I have the truck parked. I can't see that. So if a coyote does decide to circle and get downwind, I'm going to lose visibility after he crosses out of that 180 and kind of heads onto the back 180 of that pie or circle to try to get the wind, if that makes sense. So, um, either is good. And, you know, when it comes to placing the call on a crosswind setup, more times than not, I'll usually probably put it on the upwind half of that stand. Okay. So if you take that, we all refer back to that 180 again, if it's a crosswind setup, you have an upwind half, 90 degrees of that pie and you have the downwind half, right? Whether it's the left half to right half, depending on which way the wind's coming. I may take that call and put it on the upwind half. Kind of, if you draw a center line in that 180 to cut that, that 180 in half, that's your center of the stand. I'll maybe walk that call out 20, 30, 40 yards, but then maybe move it on the upwind half, maybe another 10 or 20 yards, just to help offset that a little bit. So any coyotes that do circle downwind, you know, I have a little bit more of a buffer to get those coyotes killed. Yeah, that buffer's pivotal because you've got that 70-foot buffer. They could come in and be 35 yards from you, but you're still downwind to them. So you've got a 35-yard shot on a coyote that's looking at that call. So, (laughs) yeah, that's, that's, that's. I've had that happen and it's just, it's just cool. Like it just works. Like That's got to feel like you set the, the stage. Yeah, yeah. They read the script and they, it played out right, right in front of your eyes and you got a, a slam dunk shot on a coyote. So. Yeah. And that's yeah. what, you know, also a lot of times you'll utilize a downwind guy too. You know, if, it, if it's you and a buddy or if you got multiple guys hunting, you know, I tell people, you don't need all three of you sitting ass cheek to ass cheek, you know, pointing it right at the call, you know, utilize your manpower a little bit. 
one guy, you know, if it's if it's beneficial, if you think, hey, if I send you 100 or 200 yards downwind, you know, maybe on that downwind half of the stand, there's some pretty good cover there, some pretty good, you know, terrain, or you think, hey, there's a pretty good chance a coyote could even come from there. Hey, you might send somebody downwind because he'll have a closer, quicker shot at that coyote that does show up down there, as opposed to waiting for that coyote to hopefully stay out away off your wind and get all the way up to the call. Well, speaking of shooting coyotes, uh, if you would, just a slight change of gears, walk us through what you're shooting coyotes with. What's your cartridge selection, your rifle selection, you're running a suppressor, you know, optic, what, how, how big of a scope are you running? What are you running for thermal? Walk us through what you're shooting stuff with. So I'm a big AR guy. Um, yeah. And when the, when the first, well, when the AR band was lifted in 2004, that's when I bought my first AR. Um, and just, you know, being a, having a military background, I saw the advantage of shooting that, you know, early on, you know, with the follow quick follow-up shots, you know, when it comes to shooting running coyotes. Um, and then the 223 round was, is a pretty effective round for shooting coyotes with. Simple as that. 223 and an AR-15 can't go wrong. Are you shooting suppressed? Yeah. Um, so like I said, started, I've shot nothing but an AR-15 since 2004. I don't, mm. I, I, the only bolt gun I own is just a big, like 300 wind mag for occasional deer or whatever. But, um, yeah, I got my first suppressor in 2009, maybe 2008. Um, kind of early on, I saw the, I just saw the writing on the wall there and thought, man, that, that's something I need to be part of. Um, yeah. you know, not necessarily for the coyote hunting aspect of it. Originally I thought that's what I wanted it for, but the, anybody that's ever shot suppressed, it's like, wow, I don't know why I didn't do this a hundred years ago. Mm, yeah. Know, just, yep. just the way it just, it's just so awesome. You know, I was the first one out of my whole circle of buddies, you know, we all have these circle of hunting buddies, right? And I was the first one, and everybody's like, oh, God, why are you spending money on that, you know, and him hauling around. And back then, you know, the wait was like three months um, to get them. And, Ugh. you know, now every single one of my buddies that I hunt coyotes with has them, you know, kind of deal. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, my boys are kind of suppressor snobs. They've they've shot suppressors since they were old enough to hold a gun. So anytime we go hunting with somebody, that's like the first thing they ask, do they have a suppressor, you know? <laughs> That's a good question. It is, yeah. 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 It yeah. changes it's like, the I got to start weeding them out. If you don't have suppressor, you can't come hunting with us. You know? Yeah. That's awesome. Optic-wise, do you find it beneficial on those ARs to run, you know, big magnification, or are you a low-power kind of guy, or where are you running for optics? You know, I've always been a big magnification guy. Um, you know, I shot loopholes for a lot of years. Uh, that was just kind of a personal choice, just kind of what I had. They were always kind of right in my price range, you know, um, of what I could afford. Um, and then once I started getting into the commercial side of things, you know, I pursued loophole quite, you know, pretty hard to try to get them as a sponsor of what we do for the show and everything like that. Well, they just, for whatever reasons, they just weren't interested. Well, you know, last year, Sig Sauer Optics came along and, and they're a big part of what Eastman's does. Okay. And, uh, so they were wanting to, wanting to sponsor the podcast. So I said, you know what, I've, I've always used loophole, but to be honest with you, I haven't ever looked in a lot of other stuff. I didn't really know what was out there. You know, I kind of was kind of narrow-minded, I guess, on what I was using. So I said, uh, send me what you got and started doing some research on this this BDX system because I had always shot dials, even on my loophole. I had a custom dial for my 223. That was sure. a great, you know, with I think the CDS system is what they called that. So, you know, four or 500 yard, I'd spin it to the four and, and it was usually really dead on, you know, as far as holding for the wind and stuff. Right. But, uh, you know, the BDX system, I've always been about technology, you know, with whether it's using nothing but e-calls and suppressors and AR-15s. It's just kind of what's always drawn me. 
uh, to that side was the technology side. So I thought, you know, this BDX stuff is kind of right up my alley. So I started doing some research, got a hold of, you know, a set of the rangefinder binos, uh, a Sierra 6 BDX scope, and uh, started messing with the app and got it all tuned in. And, and I really like it, the speed of it, how fast you can, you know, get on target. Um, and But, yeah, I shoot a lot of magnification. I shoot a 5 to 30 by 56. Um, you know, I keep my scope on 10. I keep my scope on 10, 11 power all the time. I don't ever run it lower than that, um, whether it's running coyotes at the call you know, running coyote, whatever it is, I, I'll zoom it in a lot when I'm shooting farther coyotes at two or three, 400 yards. But, sure. um, but that's a product of me shooting a lot. You know, I wouldn't mm-hmm. recommend somebody running out there and buying that scope. Probably if you're new to coyote hunting, you probably want something on the lower end. Um, you know, that's kind of the, the given thought is that you want to kind of keep your scope, scope kind of turned down low so that when the coyotes do come running in yeah. close, you can find them in the scope and target acquisition, trying to find them in there. But, um, but, uh, but yeah, on top of that, you know, I've, I've usually run offset 45, uh, uh red dot that's what I was gonna ask. on yep. an offset 45 mount. And, yeah, that's uh, probably you know, clutch. I think I'm running that. Yeah. You know that, uh, I think right now I'm running that, uh, six hour Romeo three XL. I think it's got a six MOA dot in it. Um, I like the little bit bigger dot, you know, for that close stuff. Um, just your eye picks it up a little bit quicker. I think when, you know, and that's made for shooting these coyotes at 20, 30 yards that, um, if you don't have a shotgun, it, it, you know, if you're not real comfortable trying to get a coyote in a scope running that close, you can just roll that gun over a little bit. And it's just like, you know, shooting a bead on a shotgun kind of some extent. And just, you know, you can get those running coyotes killed a little quicker and easier with that offset red dot. That's a good point, I guess. Yeah. Especially running an AR when you have that capability to offset something like that, uh, it makes a lot of sense. Cause yeah, if they come in right on the call, you're equipped. Uh, what bullet uh, are you running in that two two three? You know, ever since Hornady came out with those fifty three grain Vmax in the Superformance load, I, I've just it's just been I don't know it's the best coyote hunting bullet I've ever shot. Um, you know, like I said, I've been shooting ARs now for a lot of a lot of years. I've been around twenty two fifties and you name it. You know, I've been around buddies of mine that shoot all that kind of stuff, and for whatever reason, you know. Um, as a matter of, you know, yesterday we went into depth on, on my podcast with, you know, about, you know, the, the development of that 53 and why it is such a better bullet, at least in my opinion, out of the AR-15, but, you know, just the, you know, the external ballistics on it are great. My gun shoots it phenomenally. Um, you know, just a factory rifle shooting factory ammo. I'm sub half inch groups at a hundred yards, which perfect is kind of unheard of, honestly, you know, a lot of people guarantee one inch groups at a hundred, but not sub half inch groups, you know? And so it gives me that. So now I'm just extremely confident in the gun itself. Like, okay, this is going to drive tax. You know, if I, it's up to me now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the terminal ballistics of that bullet when it comes to shooting coyotes is just, you know, from a first standpoint, you can shoot a coyote broadside at 100 yards and you'll walk up to the coyote. It'll, it'll drop the coyote dead before it hits the ground. And you'll walk up to that coyote and there won't be a drop of blood on the coyote. And you're like, wow, this is pretty cool. I mean, there's no exit, yeah. no entry. I mean, just a small entry, whatever. Um, you know, running coyote. I shoot a lot of running coyotes, so obviously shooting running coyotes, you're not always precise when you're just almost trying to just hit them. You know, sure. So you're not always hitting them in the perfect spot, but you know, hitting coyotes in the back half with that bullet, very very few get away. I mean, the the wound channel it creates, whether you gut shoot them, whether you shoot them through the hips, um, most of those coyotes are dead before you know I have a chance to kind of square up and shoot them again as they're flopping around on the ground. So. Uh, just a tremendous, tremendous bullet. 
So talking about those running coyotes, I know Matt's mentioned this <laughs> to you a bunch of, and just watching the, the last stand videos, you're pretty dang good at hitting those running coyotes. Yeah. So what, <laughs> yeah, how, what, what's your mindset? What are you doing? What, what are you thinking? Well, spray and pray, right? No, I'm just <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Accuracy through volume. Yeah. Are you a machine gunner by chance? <laughs> no, I was actually a mortarman, but, mm. uh, you know, <clears throat> so, you know, Running shots is one of those things that it's it's super hard to teach. I, I've just done it a lot. You know, we talked about hunting the sandhills, right? And you're off-roading. Well, in Nebraska, you know, you can shoot out of a vehicle as long as the vehicle's not moving and as long as you're not on a public roadway. So, you know, when you're when you're hunting that sandhill country and you're bouncing from stand to stand, you're you're going to bump coyotes. It's just the way it is. You know, we call them road dogs or whatever you want to call them. Yep. And so over the you know the course of twenty years, you know, throwing the gun out the window and and uh, shooting at running coyotes, you get lots of practice. And, um, you know, and then what I do now on the commercial side of things with schools and things like that, you know, if I got all a bunch of new coyote hunters on me on with me on stand, you know, we call in a lot of coyotes that get missed standing there at 100 or 200 yards. And I always take my rifle just to back everybody up. So I get lots of practice there, you know, trying to clean up everybody else's messes, I guess, if you could say it, you know, that way. But, um, <laughs> So yeah, it's it's hard to teach it. I I th- to me it's all instinctual. Like like if I shot a running coyote, I couldn't instantly after I shot that coyote, I probably couldn't tell you how far I led that coyote. Um you know, it's just one of those things that you know, shooting a lot of them, uh just kind of seeing the angles. You know, a lot of it's three-dimensional. The thing with running coyotes is it's like three-dimensional shooting almost. It's not always they might be running left to right broadside, they're quartering to maybe some extent. They might be going straight away, but a lot of times they're going up or down a hill. So not only are you leading them out in front, you're having to compensate your bullet drop at that distance. And then also you have to compensate high or low for the angle that they're running. So it's, it's just a weird deal and, um, something that's hard to, hard to teach other than just going, I wish there was, you guys Horner need to design some sort of target system, yeah, but, uh, yeah. sling it, sling some eight inch targets across the pasture at 30 miles an hour, you know, somehow, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and yeah, you said it, there's really no way to teach that. It's and it's such an instinctual thing. And, you know, you see that a lot with shotgunning where you find a shotgun that, sh- that fits you really well and you don't have to aim it. You can you look at what you want to shoot and, and then you shoot it and it just uh, drives the point home that the human eye and the human brain is such an amazing uh, organ that it can process range, bullet drop and angle all at the same time. And you can get a shot off and hit what you're aiming at, which is pretty remarkable. And you do it in a split second and you don't even think about it. There's no conscious thought involved. And in fact, the more conscious thought you give it, the worse shot you probably end up making. Yeah. <laughs> oh, a, bi- a big part of that to me too is, is two things. And I want to touch on for guys is a, I've never shot anything, but a, an AR 15, a two twenty three for the last almost 20 years. Okay. So I've trained my brain to shoot a three thousand. 3,000 foot per second rifle. Okay. I don't bounce back and forth. I don't, I don't go out hunting one day with my AR 15. And then the next time I go coyote hunting, I'm not taking out my 22250 pushing 3,800 feet per second because now everything's different. All my leads that I have now ingrained in my head shooting a 3,000 foot per second rifle are going to be way off if I'm shooting a 3,800 feet per second rifle. Right. So I, I've preached this, you know, pick, take one rifle and shoot it all the time and, and get really, really good at it. Um, you know, if you want to get good at shooting running coyotes, because that's really what it is. It's instinctual in your mind. And if you're bouncing back and forth, 
your brain's just scrambled. You have no clue where to hold because obviously the hold on a a 200 yard broadside running coyote's going to be a little different with a 22 250 than it is a 223. So um, pick one rifle, shoot a lot, and then another thing is with your magnification on your scope. I like you told you, I keep my scope at about 10 power, 10 11 right in there all the time. And I'm always shooting at running coyotes on 10, 11 power. It's not one time I'm shooting coyotes on four power, you know, running coyotes. And the next time I'm shooting them out on 11, it's always at 10. So what that does is that trains your eye at certain distances on 10 power. That coyote is X amount so big in the scope. And Mm -hmm. if he's bigger in the scope, then that tells me that coyote's closer. If he's smaller, then that tells me he's farther away. And it kind of helps, you know, train your brain on where that lead needs to be by keeping your scope at the same power all the time when it comes to shooting coyotes. <laughs> on the, the shooting the same load thing, I'm going to take this clip back and play it for my buddies. So to drive that point home even more, uh, waterfowl. I got into waterfowl I don't know, a, a chunk of years ago now, and I've shot the same load from when I started to now. Teal season, a couple seasons ago, you know, teal are fast. I'm going to switch up, and I went with a higher velocity yeah. shot I could not hit a single thing to the point where my buddies were making fun of me. And <laughs> and I attributed it to my, my leads were different because I was yeah. shooting a higher velocity load. Yeah, you're probably shooting in front a, of everything, I bet, weren't exactly, you? Exactly. I, I couldn't hit a stinking thing. And I switched back to my load, and I'm still not a, not a great shot, but I'm doing better than I was. So that yeah. drives that point home yeah. even more. Well, luckily, it's just what I was used to. You're a good cook, and you can sling yeah. that, that duck <laughs> yeah. line breakfast. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you're looking at shotguns. What? I mean, some of those loads are like 1550 and, you know, you can buy some other stuff that's 1200 or something, you know? So, yeah, just yeah. just the difference in 300 feet per second. When you're talking a 30-yard shot, you know, at a flying duck. I sure think some of that teal difference. shot that I was shooting was like 1600 almost. And then my oh. go-to load is like 1350, 400. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, I, I was not hitting anything. Uh, so, you mentioned here you know, about, about the truck dogs or the road dogs. And then when you were talking about driving through the sand hills, and this has happened to me too, I'm sure it's happened to a lot of guys, you bump that coyote with a pickup. It, it, is that coyote done? Do you have a chance at that coyote anymore? Or what's your thought process there? You know, I think instantly then I usually make a decision. If he's close enough, I think I got a, a pretty high percentage of killing that coyote. I'll usually shoot him. Um, you know, kind of like I'm going to take the close to the guarantee right here, you know, yep. and get that coyote killed. Um, you know, if he's four or 500 yards out there and kind of running, eh, you know, the odds of hitting that one aren't very good. So I'll take my chance of that. Hey, we might call that coyote back in. Or another thing, too, you have to think about, too, is I'm going to blast away right here. You know, maybe I'm getting ready to go right over here and make a stand. Do I really want to fire off three or four or five shots, even suppressed, you know, and kind of mm-hmm. maybe booger up the area a little bit just with these shots because yeah. I think if 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 the coyote if there's a coyote in there and he hears all this ruckus or something going on over here and then you know five ten minutes later a wounded rabbit starts crying from that same spot it could be enough to where that coyote says nah I'm good I don't know if I want to go and inspect that you know area but my experience is most of the time they don't come back like whether you bump them and don't shoot at them they're probably gone Sometimes, but I'll, I'll make mental notes sometimes and say, okay, maybe we'll come back in here in a little bit, maybe a couple hours, maybe we'll loop back around and come back into this area, um, you know, and hit that after we give him the, some time to kind of settle down and settle back into what he's doing. Um, you know, I'll do that, but very rarely do they ever come back. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's super interesting. I mean, I should have probably said this from the start, but it's probably pretty apparent from 
your guys's level of calling and experience. I'm super interested, have done it a handful of times and, and want to do more and, and get better. So that's kind of been my perspective throughout. So hearing all this stuff is like drinking from a fire hose. I, I can't wait to get out and, and put <laughs> some of this to work. And yeah. it's that time of year now. And I'm, yeah, I'm even, even more uh, behind the curve, just being targets of opportunity. Um, yeah, I need to get out there and get the e-call working and, and start, start making some stands. And not to say that I couldn't have laid down a bunch of coyotes. I just got done hunting the sand hills. And my gosh, it was it was pandemonium out there. They're uh, thick this year too. The coyotes are. I mean, the numbers wise, at least for my area, they're thick. You, see, you start seeing them on the gravel roads, and they're just running around. Like you're like, oh yeah, there's good numbers. So, yeah, you know, there's no a mange, no mange, plenty of feed for them, rabbits and mice and all that. And yeah, so yeah, I, it, it's kind of crazy how how the world works here. But uh, I just listened in yesterday on the podcast you guys did uh, with Jeff. Uh, talking coyotes on, on his podcast and then getting home last night i'm out in the country coyote ripping off right behind the shelter belt like yeah. close enough to where it was over <laughs> here then i walked in the shop and it was on the other side so just on yeah. the other side of the shelter belt craziest thing after that a guy that i messaged last year to ask for permission about calling coyotes he had some cattle in there and didn't didn't want to shoot in there last year he messaged me last night, said, hey, can you come shoot some coyotes? I, they're bad this year. Yeah. Oh. Driving to work this morning, I see a coyote off the road. So it's like, it's meant to be. I need yeah. to get out there. It's time, fellas. <laughs> it is. Uh, it's time. Yeah, the hides are good, and they're probably thick as they're going to be. And uh, it's, yeah, it's time to start laying them down. Yeah. Even with a little bit of flurries today, like it tried it this morning. It's like, oh, yeah. It's get through this next weekend, get deer season done. And then, yeah, it's coyote season. Yeah. Time to start. But we've been yeah. we've been uh, talking coyotes now for a little over an hour. Is there is there some last questions you want to get out of this guy? Because we're going to have to make this a part two <laughs> yeah. if we make it a whole lot longer. I'm going through my notes here, so I should have brought a pen and paper. I've been taking notes on my phone as we go through, and and I've only got one more thing. You mentioned earlier when we were talking about how you switched sounds. Yeah, uh, you know I've heard guys that just switch yeah. direct, no issue. I've heard guys that you know, are playing, say a rabbit sound, and they turn the volume way down, switch to a different sound, turn the volume back up. You know, I've heard a bunch of different things. So, what's what's your process for actually switching between different sounds? Well, normally is I'll, I'll volume it down just a little bit. You know, if let's say I'm let's say I'm playing the call on thirty two, playing the rabbit, and I look down at my remote and I'm like that maybe three to four minute mark, and I'm like, okay, it's time to switch up something different. You know. Um, I'll volume it down to maybe, I don't know, 20, switch it real quick and I'll volume it right back up to whatever volume I had it, you know, 32 and let it roll. Um, sometimes if it's real, real windy, I'll just switch it right, you know, to the sound, uh, that I want to switch it to without volume it down at all. To me, that's more of less, I don't know if it really affects anything, you know, um, it's just more of a, I don't know, mental thing, I guess to say, okay, I'm going to switch this and. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, that's one of those things that I probably put too much human thought into it, you know what I'm saying? More than what I should. I don't know if a coyote really really cares how the volume affect, you know, if you volume down or volume up or leave it the same when you switch sounds. Um, but yeah, that's how I do it. I volume down a little bit, switch it, yeah. volume it right back up and, and continue with the stand. Is, is that what you do too? Yeah, I I mean I'm I probably I'm the same way. I put a little probably too much thought into it. I volume it down, but the more I think about it like Think about coyote vocalizations. When they howl, they don't just ease into it. They rip off. They're going. So volume, I think, is just, yeah, let them have it. The, the, if they don't hear it, they're not coming. 
So they got to hear the call. Cool. Interesting. Yeah, I've had way too many. You know, the thing about coyote hunting is none of this we can ever prove. I mean, that's the crazy thing about coyote hunting. It's not like we can have some, you know, video camera or something recording this coyote out there and watch exactly what it does, you know. So we're taking, as a coyote hunter, somebody like myself that has, you know, these theories and stuff, I'm taking a, just a very, very small sample size of, of a few things I've seen over the years and making these kind of broad assumptions, you know, of, of what every coyote's going to do. And it's and I know not every coyote's going to do the same, but it, it just falls back on the probability and percentages. A majority of the coyotes are probably going to do that. So, um, yeah, volume up, volume down. You know, back to your volume question, I'm sure some guys are probably listening to this saying, oh, God, no, you can't just crank the volume right off the bat. You're going to spook out coyotes. And I think, I always think to myself, you know, I try to relate back to why do people think that? You know, how did this theory come about? And I think about it like this. At some point, and maybe even you listening or you guys have seen this, where you, you walked in, you sat down on a stand, and you fired the call up, and you looked out there at two or 300 yards, and there's a coyote running off. I don't know. Has that ever happened to you, Matt, or anybody? Yep. Oh, yeah. Yep. So. You know, I think the average guy, if that happens to them, what's the first thing that goes through his mind? Oh, the call. Spooked him. Yeah, the call's call too loud. I, pl- I played the call too loud. I spooked that coyote right. off. Well, I think about it a little different. I think more than likely that coyote saw you the whole time walking into that yep. stand, watched you put the call out, and he was okay sitting there but then all as soon as you fired up this noise now that was enough to spook that coyote off there so i've seen that a few times but but what i've seen way more times than that is a coyote on a dead run with his nose in the speaker within about 30 seconds of the stand or less at full volume so obviously if 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 that coyote's to the call within 30 seconds he wasn't very far right 100 200 yards tops and i played at max volume and that didn't spook that coyote off he came on a dead run and stuck his nose in the speaker you know at 32 volume so that's why i kind of feel like you know the volume thing's kind of a little overrated you know don't be afraid to throw some volume out there yeah yeah well that's super interesting yeah if anybody else doesn't have anything i got one more thing yeah and it's just curiosity is that your lucky hat? Or in recent times, it looks like you've been wearing that hat or one very similar throughout. So is that the yeah, go-to this hat? Is, this is my hat. Like I said, you know, probably my, my second big, biggest passion other than coyote hunting is baseball. Um, coaching baseball especially. You know, my middle son is, is a big baseball player, and I've been coaching his travel baseball team here in Scotts Bluff uh, since they were 8U. They're going to be 14U this summer. So... Um, our team is called the Wesco Bomb Squad. So our logo, the W for Wesco, is the same as the Washington Nationals. So um, this is just my hat that I wear all summer coaching baseball, and it's camoed. So I thought, hell, I'll just keep wearing it in the uh, you know throughout the coyote season. You know, <laughs> now it's yeah. YouTube famous. Yeah. If it's broke, don't fix it. There yeah. you go. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and I'm you know I'm, I'm with the younger generation. Got the flat bill, you know. So I'm, I'm in with them. But you got appeal to that audience too, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. This this has been awesome for, for me. You know, I hope the listener yeah. get got a lot of things out of this too. But me just going through my process, and it's like, yeah, I could talk for hours here. So, and yeah. the next thing I think, part two or an additional episode we need to get Jeff on is is raccoons, calling raccoons. Oh yeah, because yeah. that I enjoy oh, doing sure. that too, yeah. and and have a lot of fun. So. And, you know, my, my process to doing that is, well, here's a tree. I'm going to throw out the call. Let's wait. So <laughs> yeah. it'd be cool to kind of get to dive into that at some point too. 
Yeah. So maybe we should do a special uh for yeah, harvest. Yeah, game for that. Yeah. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, that would be a good one. I mean, the thing about raccoons, I you know, you touched briefly on predator management. You know, as far as coyotes, I don't know if us as coyote hunters do a whole lot for coyote management. You know, killing coyotes right now, early in the fall, even in the middle of winter, doesn't do a lot for fawn recruitment and stuff because that's not coming up for another three months. So if you're not out there actively killing coyotes in in March or April, you're not doing much for for predation stuff. But I think with the raccoon side, I think everybody, it seems like everybody I talk to that's a turkey hunter has seen a pretty big decline in turkey numbers um, in the last couple of years. And I think a lot of that has to do with the raccoon population. Just the fur market went under, you know, nobody's trapping raccoons and there's just, there's just millions of them now and nobody's yeah. hunting them. And, and there's I no think incentive they're, to they're devastating yeah. your turkey numbers and things like that. Yep. We definitely need to do that. That'd be fun. Well, Jeff, you know, from, uh, from all of us here at Hornady, we appreciate you shooting our stuff. We we're, we're happy to have you on team Hornady, obviously, you know, a national champion, a world champion in the coyote world. Uh, it's just great to have you as a, as a resource and as somebody that's, that's flying our flag. And we appreciate your time sitting down with us. Cause gosh, you know, like Judd mentioned, we sure learned a lot. Yeah. Well, I've always appreciated Hornady being, being on my team and being on your team. Um, you know, just being a fellow Nebraskan, Nebraska based company. Um, it's something that I've always just loved to be a part of. So yeah, I really appreciate you guys supporting what I do. Awesome. Well, everybody out there, hopefully you enjoyed this podcast. I know there's something to be taken away from everybody, whether you're a, a novice coyote hunter like me or you're a seasoned veteran. There was a ton of information out here. Hopefully you can take something away, apply it in the field, and we'll catch you guys on the next one.